Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Welcome back and welcome to episode 12. All the cool podcasts out there say, remember to give us some stars on iTunes, so I'm going to say it too. Oh, the algorithms, the algorithms. This podcast is many things to me. Lately, I've been thinking that it's like Bixamel. There's a good classic Danish word for you. Potatoes, onions, whatever meat and veg you have in the fridge and often topped with a fried egg. It's a leftover dish. The big frying pan into which I throw whatever bits and pieces I have in my cupboards and at the back of my memory fridge. So without further ado, let's fire up the campfire. Number 53. Words. Anyone who spends time with me in foreign countries has heard me say in conversations, hey, what's the word for that in insert a language? I've never been good at collecting things, as mentioned before, but then again, I forgot to think about words. I'm a prolific collector, hunter-gatherer, hoarder of words in many languages. Words, but also the origins of words. Etymology. I will go to my grave wondering how many words I missed exploring in this insignificant window of time in the history of the world that I was given to work with. A childhood friend of mine, when we were back in our young teenage years, would look up a new word in the dictionary every day and use it as often as possible. I thought that was cool. Well, up to a point, anyway. If I said, do you want to go to the store and get a Coke? Figure out for yourself how you'd work discombobulated or omnipotent into your answer. Yeah, it got super dorky, super quick. But the idea was good. I grew up in a neighborhood with basically just that one discombobulated friend. I went to a school on the other side of the city, not the local one. My big sister always encouraged me to read, so books were a massive part of my young life, as they still are. With a lot of reading comes a constant summer rain of words, and you don't need or want an umbrella. When I was in my late teens, another friend and I would identify words that we hated. I remember one of them was neat. Oh, that's so neat. We decided to take other words and use them all the time to try and get others to use them, trying to intentionally start slang. I remember, for example, we thought that tidy should be the new neat and used it often when around others. Yeah, didn't really work. There are, obviously, many words, and their number increases exponentially the more languages you learn, which serves to thrill and fascinate, but also frustrate to no end. There are words I know, but that I never use. For some reason, the first one that came to mind was insipid. I can't tell you if I've ever used it in a sentence in my life. Until now, anyway. I might have written it. Not sure. I know that I use more words when writing than when speaking. Isn't that a bizarre thought? 
There are probably thousands of words that you know. You've read them, learned them, understood them, but you have never actually said them out loud. That would be a mind-boggling, nerdy scientific study to figure out how many words people know and how many of them they have never actually said. Then again, I love that I still trip over words. There are some words that I constantly spell wrong. Definitive comes to mind. No matter how acutely aware of it, every time I write it, my brain still wants to write definitive instead of definitive. Then there are the bigger stumbles. Words I've forgotten. Now I'm writing this on my phone on the plane home to Copenhagen, rotating between writing this and rereading the book The Great Railway Bazaar by Paul Theroux. This is the book that sent me out into the world to explore, never to return to the place where I was raised. I just now read the word sepulchral. In this sentence, the visiting scholars creep about with the diffidence of caretakers maintaining the sepulchral startliness of a place. The Wi-Fi isn't working on board this plane today, so I can't immediately look it up. Oh, it's obviously easier in an internet world. My search history is filled with, insert a word, etymology, or insert a word, meaning. But I can miss the physical act of needing to find a dictionary in a hurry, and upon finding it, leafing through the pages, running a finger down the page, past alphabetical entries, to find a word and its meaning. I still have the Dictionary of Word Origins, an integral companion on my etymological journey through several decades. That is one dog-eared book. But I'm constantly acutely aware that I'm neglecting an ocean of words coined, invented, made up by fellow humans before me for me to use to describe the tapestry of life. Words I have never seen or learned in the languages I speak and all the ones I don't. Oh, but fuck, words are awesome. You might be familiar with a book called Untranslatable Words. There are now many lists on the internet. Simple and effective words from a wide variety of languages that require an entire sentence in other languages to get across. Some that I recall include one from, I think, Papua New Guinea. The truth that we all know and that we accept as the truth, but that nobody talks about. One word for all that. Then there's Ikswarpak, and I probably pronounced that wrong, from Eastern Canadian Inuktitut, one of the principal Inuit languages of Canada. It describes the act of repeatedly going outside to keep checking if someone, anyone, is coming. Somewhere between impatience and anticipation. Fernway in German means a longing for faraway places, including places you've never visited. Different from wanderlust. Derive in French means to spontaneously wander, led by the landscape and the architecture. Sobre mesa in Spanish is the time spent around a table after a meal. You're done eating, but everyone sticks around to talk, drink, play games, etc. Kumorabi in Japanese means the sunlight streaming through the leaves of trees. There's a word in, I think it's Balinese, I can't remember it, which means you don't know who you are, which way the center of the island is, or which caste the person you're talking to is. The Danish word hygge has enjoyed global popularity over the past few years. I was in a bookshop in the UK back in 2019, and I saw seven different books about it. The direct translation is something like 
cozy. Many of the writers trying to explain it fall short of the mark. It has many deeper layers, and it's often more of an emotional thing than a linguistic one. Reading through some of these books, you can get the impression that all you need to do is knit your own socks, curl up on the sofa with a cup of tea, and light a candle, and you have nailed Hugo. Not quite. If I have had an enjoyable social situation with friends, I can say, when leaving, this has been hoogly. I won't say it every time. I don't have a specific measurement for when it's hoogly or not. I just feel it, and then I say it. An almost identical evening with the same friends on another day might not be as hoogly as the other one. I have no idea why. Interestingly, the word has changed slightly. I've written an article about it, and I asked a whole bunch of Danes a pressing question. Can you hug alone? A lot of people under 30 said, uh, yeah, of course. But the over 30s said, no way. You need to be two or more in order to hug. My own explanation of the word when telling people about it stems from an evening many years ago. It was midweek in November. There was a Champions League match on, and the boys were meeting up in an apartment to watch it. Five men in their late 20s. Pizza, beer, and piss-taking. We were sitting around getting settled into the evening when one of my friends said to the host, Lars, Don't you have any candles? The tone was gently mocking, but also accusatory. Lars quickly realized his faux pas and scurried out to get some and light them around the living room. Only then did a sense of calm settle over the testosterone football evening. Danes buy more candles per capita than anywhere else in the world. In the winter, they are integral for creating a warm mood. They are also key in ensuring hygge, but not the singular definition of it. There are words, but even just verb tenses can do the trick for me. I can't remember the language, but you can specifically note the exclusion of a person in the conversation. Like, I'm going, you're going, we're going, but then also, we're going but you won't be joining us. It's hard to find a decent list of how many words each language has because there are different ways to measure it and nobody can agree on the best way. Some languages, like Danish, but famously German, allow for slapping words together to form new ones, so the list grows almost daily. Then there are senses for different word classes, such as noun and adjective and homographs and inflections. Apparently, one of the easiest ways is to measure headwords. Danish is a smaller language with about 200,000 words. English is a sponge language and has about a million. I have this quote from somewhere written down in my journals. English not only steals from languages, but it chases them down dark alleyways, beats them senseless, and rifles through their pockets for spare vocabulary. One of my favorite words in Danish is baustiu. Stute means stiff, which is a slang for drunk. The first part of the word, bout, means back or behind. So, in English, we say, I am still drunk from the day before. That rare state where you don't wake up hungover, but rather still tipsy. In Danish, we say, I am baustute, back drunk. A small language has brevity, but also forced creativity. There are also some great examples of not only brevity, but also inflection. There's a word in Danish, no. It's an N and then an A with a circle on top of it. Danish has three extra vowels, and this is one of them. Actually, the letter all on its own means stream. 
The Danish letter U, an O with a line through it, is also a word all on its lonesome, meaning island. I dig it how one letter is an entire word. But back to no. There are many ways to say it that give many different meanings. It is an absolute minefield if you're learning Danish. No? A little one. It keeps the conversation going. I get what you're saying. Keep talking. No? I'm skeptical about something. Probably something you're saying. No? Kind of like, what's up? How you doing? No. I just remembered something important. No, no. Relax, calm down, take it easy. No. Expressing genuine surprise. No. Impatience. Let's get this moving. Let's go. No. That's what you say when you see a cute puppy or a baby. No. I'm coming to get you. Scary <laughs> or playful. No. When you finally understand something. No. When you realize that you're wrong and they're right. No. I don't really care. Two letters. One word. And all of that. No, 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 I love it. Back when my ex-wife was pregnant with our first kid, I started researching bilingualism. I wanted to speak English to him and his mum would speak Danish. I was surprised to learn that the scientific research about bilingualism is pretty recent, and it's exciting because it's constantly advancing. Basically, when we're born, we all have little neurons attached to all the sounds that humans make. For the first three years of life, we keep them all connected. After the age of three, we start cutting the neurons attached to the sounds we've never heard. Like a Chinese sound or word like sure, or a throaty Danish R like in the word hol. Then we start zooming in on the sounds and words we've been hearing from the people around us and focusing on learning them. So I would put on Chinese films, Italian and French music, you name it, while my kids were babies. Because if a baby hears a language or its sounds and words between zero and three years old, they have a much greater chance of learning that language later in life because they don't cut the neurons. If only parenting was always that easy. I also made a point back then of not speaking baby talk. Look at the choo-choo train. Let's face it, for 99% of their life, the kid isn't going to say, choo-choo train. Yeah, I have to go to a meeting and hammer out the details of the contract with the client, so I booked a choo-choo train at 4 o'clock. I just said train, man. I wanted to get the right words in at the beginning. Baby talk is an adult construct and not useful to anyone. Now that we're learning so much about the brain and its capacity for language, it's a good idea. There are more bilingual people in the world than monolingual people, so we know humans are designed for multilingualism. Kids can soak up the wildest things and benefit from them later in life. Most bilingual families I know have a lexicon of their own unique words, stuff their kids have said that was funny and that stuck. And it's usually a mix of languages. When my son was little and learning how to master both speech and language, he started repeating a phrase that was something like, it was super weird. My ex and I could not for the life of us figure out what he was saying for a very long time. We joked that it sounded like which is Danish for where is Doobie, whoever Doobie might be. One day, out of the blue, we pieced it together. 
he was mixing the Danish for Where are we going? and the English for What are we doing? It became cemented as What are you doing in our family dictionary? I can still call out my ex and say and she'll say, oh, you know, just making dinner or whatever. Years later, my daughter had a mysterious, repetitive phrase of her own. Hawaii? Again, it took ages to figure out what she was saying until the light bulb lit up over our heads. She was mixing the Danish for why, vafa, and the English why, Hawaii. It took five years for us to get the answer to the pressing question, where is Doobie? He is in Hawaii, which is Hawaii in Danish. But hey, these words and phrases were invented in the same way that humans have always invented them. And a little handful of words are ours and ours alone. In some languages, inventing words has been tricky, like Icelandic. The word for intersection is gatnamot. It basically just means street meat. At some point in history, some lonely path carved its way through the lava fields. Then someone else carved a path from a different direction, and it reached the first path and had to cross it. Imagine the scene. Some bearded, fur-clad Icelanders with a horse or a herd of sheep standing there, puzzled. Discussion ensued. We have one street. One street is easy. But now we have another street. Streets come together. What do we call this? Street meat. I can geek out on this all day long. Okay, then there's what I guess I call reductionism, where we take established, tried and tested words and just reduce them to almost nothing. I don't have to say, what's going on? Or, what's up? I can just say, sup. The Brits, of course, have in it. It's a nice day, in it. Think about it. You can say, I don't know. You can just say, I don't know. Or just, don't know. But then, you can also just drone, I don't know and still be understood. In Danish, I don't know is technically de vil jeg ikke. Four words meaning that, no, I not. Come to think of it, Yoda must be a big fan of Danish. But saying dig gets your point across just as well. Sticking with Scandinavia, if you're listening to someone talking and want to make it known that you're following what they're saying, you can just take the word for yes, yeah, or ja, and inhale it. They do it more in Sweden and Norway, I've noticed, and for some reason, women do it more than men. There, it just simply becomes just a sharp but soft inhalation of breath. And wildly, the farther you go north in Sweden, the less it becomes. A slight inhalation through pursed lips. It's cold and remote up there, so maybe yes evolved, or devolved, into a sound where less cold air enters the body and less energy is exerted. Who knows? I want to give a shout-out to the vocables. These vocables are a non-lexical utterance, word-like sounds that aren't strictly words and generally reflect the speaker's emotional reaction to the context, instead of stating something specific. You know them well. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Hmm. Ah. Um, so cool. Unless, of course, they're overused and replace proper words. I also just realized while writing this that I love R's in different languages. I judge a language by how they roll their R's in their words. Yes, Catalan, Arabic, and Icelandic, and some others. I'm looking at you. Call me. 
but also just any language that does anything remotely interesting with their R's. French and Danish, I mean, the list is long. Most English accents aren't on it. It's just R, ride, right, road, except the guttural northern UK or Scottish, which were influenced by centuries of guttural Danish rule, which of course is great. I love it when new mongrel words appear, and they do so more frequently in the internet age. Words like staycation, staying at home for your vacation instead of vacating to another place, which was added to dictionaries around 2009. It soundly beat out the upstart portmanteau, holiday. I also love it when a word shows up and we all think it's new and fresh and funny, and then someone finds out, thanks to articles and books being digitalized, that it is way older than we thought. Staycation was first used in 1944. Other words that we all know include doom-scrolling, super-spreaders, frenemy, chillax. I actually made a word up a while ago. Unfuckwithable. But hey, sounds like I got a bit off track there. Words, etymology, multilingualism, vocables, sounds, the whole nine yards. But yeah, I'm going to miss strip-mining languages for words and their sounds to box up and take home to my brain. Sadly, the collection will disappear with me when I'm dead. I wish I could plug in a USB and download all my words in my head so others can upload them to their brains. Number 54. Storytelling. After I graduated from film school, I started writing screenplays and making films. But I also started teaching storytelling and screenwriting. In order to make some money because, yeah, I was writing screenplays and making films. But hey, also because I enjoyed it. Abraham Maslow famously identified the basic needs for humans to survive. The short list is food, water, shelter. I've always thought that our fourth basic need is storytelling. Many years ago, I was in the north of Greenland. I went out hunting with a group of Inuit. It was early spring. The hunters were virtually silent during the day. Low murmurs, hand signals, smooth instructions to the sled dogs in tones that didn't travel over the ice pack for any long distance. Hunting efficiently and yet in a spooky silence. The stealthiest experience imaginable. Each evening, we would set up camp for the night. Tents erected, provisions dug out of the sleds. After shelter was established, food and drink were prepared. Again, using an absolute minimum of words and even sounds. Everyone knew their role. I didn't have one, but they were sure I helped out and made myself useful. We ate in silence and then sipped coffee, staring at the gas stove. A universal campfire moment that humans a million years ago would recognize. Then, someone would start talking. I could never figure out how they determined whose turn it was. But a smooth monologue would pierce the silence and fill it with stories. Some of the hunters didn't speak Danish, or didn't want to. A young hunter acted as a translator for me, but he stopped abruptly when the story started. It didn't matter. Listening to a language you don't understand is hypnotic, and the sound of Inuit is riveting. He filled me in later. Ancient tales, recent tales, great hunters on epic journeys facing impossible foes, loves won and lost. Again, universal and timeless subject matter. After food, 
water, and shelter were secured, stories were the next in line. Naturally, organically, without question. I love that story. All of it is true. Except for one thing. I've never been to Greenland. It wasn't me. A friend told me this story. He was there as a journalist. He told it to me many years ago in a conversation about this topic of storytelling. But so many years ago, I can't remember who he was. I have no way of knowing if I've remembered it correctly or have embellished it since. Doesn't matter. It's still a good story. And it still supports my postulate that storytelling and dramaturgy are an integral part of Homo sapiens. We seem to possess a drama gene in our minds. Many people I've talked to have argued that sex would rank higher than storytelling. But I'll argue right back that in order to have sex, stories need to come first. Whether it be a clever pickup line, or a charming, intelligent conversation, or a belly-busting, joke-cracking drinking session, it is our stories that often seal the sexual deal. I've always been fascinated by the inherent structure in storytelling. The dramaturgy has remained constant for, you know, a few hundred thousand years. We have normally known what we were getting into. When a story began around a campfire with our hunter-gatherer homies in the Neolithic evening, we had an inherent sense of the length and dramaturgy that was heading our way as we stared into the flames. In ancient Greece, as we filed into the amphitheater for an entire day of epic tragedy, we knew that it would be divided up into two-hour slots with breaks in between. Aristotle's nailed down the rules for dramaturgy in his book, Poetics, basically defining what all Homo sapiens before him knew in their subconscious, as well as setting the stage for the Hollywood screenwriting factory that would show up a couple of millennia later. I find it interesting that pre-war films were shorter than they are today, and longer than in the silent era that came before. It was Orson Welles, a well-read and researched filmmaker, who adopted Aristotle's work into what became a modern cinema format, around about 120 minutes with clearly defined dramaturgy built in. Rosebud. Hollywood made it into a system after that. No matter what film you're watching, you'll be dragged unwittingly through the following. Setup. Hook. First plot point. Midpoint, or point of no return. Second plot point. Climax and resolution. Not to mention the subplots, the beats in every scene, the development metaphor, and the moment of grace. While Hollywood made it into a production line factory, it's still the same basic structure as in every good story in human history. As the legendary Italian screenwriter Sergio Donati told me, In the first act, you hang a man up in a tree. In the second act, you throw stones at him. In the third act, he falls out of the tree. If he's alive, it's a comedy. If he's dead, it's a drama. Now we're deep into the television series era and our lives have become a logistical jumble as we try to figure out how to make time for the series we follow at the moment and the ones that are recommended to us. It's a constant jive between binge-watching one series and catching another one once a week and sneak previewing a whole bunch of others. It's not that long ago that we would time our lives to accommodate the set broadcast times of Flow TV offerings and arrange our calendar to go physically to the cinema. In a flash, things became different. I'm an enthusiastic viewer when I happen upon a series that appeals to me. 
From a dramaturgical point of view, however, binging on TV series is something that we're not really used to. I've noticed a physical reaction in myself when I start to watch a series. A sense of uneasiness and, on occasion, irritation. I finally realized why. I'm going to get back to that. Binging on TV series or being old school and watching them weekly is changing our ancestral expectations of storytelling. Sure, every episode of House of Cards or Game of Thrones consists of the same dramaturgy as ever, but the length and scope of TV series is forcing us to recalibrate ever so slightly. It's a bit of a storytelling Wild West. Change is fine. French screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière, in his fantastic book The Secret Language of Film, describes how people had to learn to watch cinema films after generations of theater plays. He explains the various storytelling mechanisms that evolved and how people readily adapted to them, like the flashback, for example. Cinemagoers didn't have a clue what was going on at first. They needed some storytelling hand-holding for a while until they figured it out. When television came along, it readjusted our storytelling considerably as well, trying to grab our attention quickly before we zap away as opposed to 20 minutes of character development that we sat through in the cinema before getting to the plot. In the early days of television, cinema was its primary influence. But then television started influencing right back. A Hollywood blockbuster now starts with a battle, a massive conflict, to hook you in, and then eases into character introduction and context. That's thanks to television. Grab them before they change channels. And then MTV showed up and forced us to follow entire narratives in only three and a half minutes and in flashing images lasting only one or two seconds. We learned how to decode these music videos quickly. The same with commercials. I don't watch TV much anymore, but if I do, it's Danish public service without any commercial breaks. On occasion, in an American hotel room, I find myself watching TV simply to see this strange advertising culture in action. Fascinated by the brevity, the limited time to get a narrative and a point across. Now we have memes and gifs, which have further reduced the time in which we get a joke or an emotion. The one-liner has probably been around for a very long time, but it's endlessly fascinating to me how we have boiled dramaturgy and storytelling down to the bare minimum in only a century, and we adapt quickly to every mutation. We have to learn quick. It is said that for every hour we're alive, 10,000 hours of moving images are produced. If knowing that doesn't make you jittery about getting through your bucket list of TV series, I don't know what will. And, and wait, wait a sec. That statistic, I seem to recall I heard it back in them olden days before streaming services showed up. I can't even imagine what that number would be today. But what of the sense of irritation and anxiety that I experience when I start a series? The best piece of advice I've received about starting a series is that you have to give it three episodes before you bail. I find this to be true about most series I watch, although it's wonderful to start one that just grabs you right off the bat. A while back, yeah, probably a few years now, I started The Sopranos. I was a late, late bloomer, I know. But I was, back then, in an awkward spot between having finished House of Cards waiting for the next season of Game of Thrones, and being forced to wait a week for the next episode of Vikings. All the positive reviews from friends and the expectations couldn't help me shake off my irritation as the characters and plot of the first episode came to life. 
It continued into the second and third episode. I was unfocused, checking my phone or my laptop, somehow unwilling to engage, restless. By the fourth episode, I noticed my anxiety eased. I could settle in to watch and enjoy each episode without acting like a skittish pigeon. My dramaturgical expectations need to calibrate to the new characters and storyline. It basically feels like starting a new job in an office with a bunch of new colleagues. Or, in a shorter time frame, walking into a party where I don't know anyone. I'm embarking on a journey with these characters. They will be occupying a great deal of my valuable time, and part of the irritation is the fact that I'm letting them into my calendar. I am acutely aware that I will have to spend time with these people. I will have to feel sympathy for the protagonist and share his or her animosity with their antagonists. I'm going to have to invest emotions in them and their travails. I am, of course, a free individual, so I can certainly decide for myself who to like or dislike or who to invest my emotions in. I don't need to watch a series like The Sopranos or any other. I can turn off the TV whenever I want. But when I start one, my drama gene insists on vetting the content. I want to engage emotionally with the characters in a new series. I desire to follow their story. I hope the series is well-written and directed competently. But I feel like these characters... Okay, the people who made the series are responsible as well, but my anxiety is directed at fictional characters, it seems. It seems like they're forcing themselves upon me, forcing me to feel for them and to interact with them, like those colleagues at that new job or the chattering partygoers at the bar. Who the hell do you think you are, Tony Soprano, muscling into my life? Sometimes it is a struggle to get to three episodes, but I battle it out. I don't think I've ever walked out of a cinema. Maybe, maybe once in my life. And it's kind of the same thing. Three episodes before you bail. It's rarely with a shrug and a muttered whatever that I stop watching. It's often with a sense of disgust and frustration. They stole my time, and now it's wasted, these morons. I'll never get it back. Like three Tinder dates with the same person at expensive restaurants, but without any spark or decent conversation, let alone fooling around. It's an emotional effort to allow these characters under my skin. Just embarking on a journey with them requires effort. I always want to like them and feel for them. The fear of that not happening, with the result of having wasted my time, is manifested physically on my person. But I accept it. I even like it. I know that my inherent desire for stories is strong, like every other homo sapien. I like this new era of entertainment that is upon us. Even after many months, I still wanted to see if Hot Dragon Mama was going to sit on the Iron Throne or whether Ragnar would keep kicking ass around Europe. I especially like bouncing between Polish, Spanish, Brazilian, Danish, Norwegian, South Korean series. That international spectrum that is now a part of our lives is fantastic. I just finished watching the South Korean Netflix series Squid Game. Don't worry, no spoilers. I was absolutely riveted by the storyline, the premise, the plot. I couldn't wait to see the next episode, which is really bizarre because I don't think I've ever seen such bad acting in my entire life, certainly not on a series on that level. But my irritation at most of the actors was completely overruled by the plot. Generally, my brain and my heart will need to readjust and recalibrate every single time to the storytelling flow every single time I start a new series or see a new film. 
There are the stories that people make for us in the hope that we'll watch them, and then there is our storytelling. Our lives are books, films, series, with short commercial-sized bits in between. I have ended up as the keeper of my family's stories. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm sure other family members have enjoyed the tales and the characters, but I remember asking my mom to tell me the stories again and again, how she met my dad shortly after the Second World War, the whole kind of romantic emigration from Europe involving ships and trains and new lives. Mine is a huge family with a ragged cast of characters, so keeping track of timelines, relationships, and locations is tricky. Despite my best efforts, the wider storytelling sometimes feels fragmented. I have many notes written down, and a lot of it is still in my head. My main challenge now is the fact that all of the main storytellers, all the witnesses, are gone. I can't call up my parents or my aunt and say, hey, what year did that happen in? Or who was her next husband after the divorce? I've delved into our family tree, since most records in Denmark are now digitalized. I found wild and crazy stories that would make a great reality show. I stopped in the late 1600s when the handwriting in the archives was gothic. I haven't been able to wrap my brain around learning that just yet. But at the end of the day, I have the rough notes for a script, but I can't research anymore. That makes me feel a bit anxious. There is no blockbuster feature film or series in this material. You would find some of the stories unique and entertaining if I told them to you. But they are mostly just one family's origin stories. They are our stories. You have yours. Still, I feel a weight on my shoulders for being the one, for whatever reason, who was entrusted with them, and who was maybe more interested in them than the others. In my life, I find myself constantly searching out stories and inventing them. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that I always look for a cinematic narrative in relationships. It's like I want life to be more like a film. Romance as well. I've arranged to meet people for a date on large public squares because, you know, it just feels cinematic. It feels like a place where a beautiful story should begin. I think about the storytelling legacy of where we kiss for the first time or where I might say, I love you for the first time. I'm always writing a script, it seems. Always looking for the dramatic not to be confused with looking for drama, and seeking out characters to match or oppose my own. I'm the protagonist in the one film I get to make, the story of my life, as are you and everyone else. You may recall another thing I'll miss when I'm dead from an earlier episode, Living Life Like a French Film. I guess this storytelling thing is very much connected to that. In my cinematic mirror, I'm the hero battling all the odds, wooing the girl, always cool and unshakable and unfuckwithable. I guess it's probably important to remember that in the films of other people's lives, I might be the antagonist, the buffoon, the drama queen, the enemy. That is a reality check. But all of it is storytelling. Without it, we would be quite dead. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel Anderson. Thanks for being out there.